There is a fifth dimension, beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. It lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Dimensions, a Twilight Zone podcast. I'm your host, Bill Couch, and in this episode, we will be discussing Season 1, Episode 7, titled The Lonely. Now, this episode was written, of course, by Rod Serling. It was directed by Jack Smite, who would go on to direct three more episodes of The Twilight Zone before his tenure was up. Produced, of course, by the inimitable Buck Houghton. Music, of course, by Bernard Herman. In the cast were Jack Warden, John Daner, Gene Marsh, and Ted Knight. You can watch this episode on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, or you can steal it from the internet like a lot of people do, but if it's, you know, on all those other services, there's really no need to do that. The original air date was November 13th, 1959. And I must tell you, of course, ahead there will be spoilers and trivia and all sorts of fun things. So if you have any feedback for this episode, previous episodes, or future episodes to come, please feel free to reach out to me at dimensionstzpodcast at gmail.com. But before we get started, I just wanted to say that uh wanted to ask you to forgive my absence for not having more episodes out in a timely fashion. I uh, had a little family issue that I had to deal with, uh, had a death in the family, and... So that kind of took some time away from this, but I am back now and I will definitely finish what I started. So tell your neighbors, tell your friends, tell your pastor, tell your uncle, tell everyone you know to listen in and send me some feedback. And now here's Will Lastly with the opening narration. Witness, if you will, a dungeon made out of mountains, salt flats, and sand that stretch to infinity. The dungeon has an inmate, James A. Corey, and this is his residence, a metal shack, an old touring car that squats in the sun and goes nowhere, for there is nowhere to go. For the record, let it be known that James A. Corey is a convicted criminal placed in solitary confinement. Confinement, in this case stretches as far as the eye can see, because this particular dungeon is on an asteroid nine million miles from the Earth. Now witness, if you will, a man's mind and body shriveling in the sun, a man dying of loneliness. Now in this opening narration, uh, Rod Serling and Will Lastly seem to give away more than normal in an opening narration of an episode of The Twilight Zone. It, uh... It's almost too much, I think, maybe. But he was the creator and a lot smarter than I am and a lot more talented than I am. So I'm going to let him 
do his thing and just enjoy it. So we meet James Corey, who was played by Jack Warden, who is on an asteroid by himself floating in space. And this is meant to take place somewhere in the year 2046 to 2047, where hardened prisoners, prisoners who have been convicted of heinous crimes, like Jack Warden's character of Corey, committed murder. They are sent to prisons on asteroids, basically a really severe form of solitary confinement. In fact, Rod, even in the opening narration, refers to it as a dungeon, which is somewhat fitting, but somewhat not fitting, given the where it takes place, the, the sort of atmosphere, so to speak. So Mr. Corey is floating on an asteroid nine million miles from Earth, so it's said. Now, interesting of note, people who know who Jack Warden is, or, you know, know who have seen him in a lot of things, he's one of those people that has always looked old, even when he wasn't old. Uh, case in point, in this episode, when this was filmed, he was 39 years old, and he looks easily like he's 50. So, he's just one of those people, like Robert Duvall, or Burgess Meredith, who when they were, I'm, I'm betting even when he was 12, he looked like he was 27. You know what I mean? He's just one of these people that just has an old face to them, like a mature face. Maybe not old. Maybe old is not the correct term. Maybe mature would be a better way to say it, which for this episode I think really works due to the fact that this is a man that is stuck on an asteroid in solitary confinement for a crime and He's there by himself with nothing but himself and has been for almost five years. So I would imagine in that sort of an environment, it would age you quickly. Now, one thing about this episode that I've always liked, and you're going to see it in other episodes the further on we go in the series, is that this is one of the sweaty episodes where people are constantly sweating. And it's, it's I mean, it fits with this, but... You know, it's it's one of those things. People sweat a lot back then, but we'll get into that a little more later. So, as we learn, Mr. Corey has been on this asteroid for the last four years. And what they do is, apparently, Earth will send a supply ship to all the asteroids that have people on them about every three months. And it just so happens that Mr. Corey is about due for another shipment. Now, Corey has a car sitting out front of his little ramshackle hut that he lives in that according to him in his in his opening soliloquy was brought to him by Captain Allenby who pilots the ship usually that brings him supplies every three months you know he gave it to him to uh, keep his mind occupied so to speak Allenby gave him the car and brought him parts to fix it and, and work on it and according to the soliloquy took a year or just over a year to put together. So if you're in that situation, you look for pretty much anything you can do to keep your mind occupied. And that would have been a great thing to kill a year trying to put a car together, even though you knew good and well you'd never be able to drive it anywhere. So the ship lands and Alan B and his crew get out. His crew is comprised of himself, Mr. Adams, and an unnamed third guy who has like literally one line throughout the show and we don't really care about him but Adams the second crew member was played by Ted Knight 
who would go on later to star as the snobby rich guy in the film Caddyshack. Now, of course, Corey is excited because he hasn't seen a person in three months, and now he gets to see not only a person, but a friend of his, or a person who has become a friend of his, if you can call it that, by delivering supplies every three months, he gets to see Captain Allenby, who, like I said, they're, they're basically on really friendly terms. And Corey just gets really excited. He gets like a kid on Christmas morning. He doesn't know whether to sit or stand up or run around in a circle. And he starts to clean off his workstation, put out a deck of cards, get his little chess set out, which he made out of nuts and bolts and washers. And this is a part where I think Jack Warden really kind of gets into this character and really kind of does it justice the way he the way he portrays him being excited that he's got people to see and, and people to even entertain that, you know, he's, he's like a kid in a candy store and it's really something to see. So Allenby, as I said earlier, is played by John Daner, who had a great career in radio and a, another good career in television and film following this, but in the realm of the Twilight Zone, he would be in three episodes total. This one, Another one called Mr. Garrity and the Graves, and a third one titled The Jungle. Now, he's a supporting cast in this episode, but in Garrity and the Graves and The Jungle, he's actually the star of the show. So we will delve more into him and his work and life later in one of those episodes. So Allenby explains to Corey that they don't really have time to play cards or chess or sit around and shoot the breeze because they've only got about 15 minutes to unload the supplies and leave, or else due to, I don't know, sunspots or something, they'd be stuck there for another two weeks, which they didn't want to be, obviously. So they had to get everything unloaded quickly. Which, once again, this is where Jack Warden really shines, because he goes from being excited to basically almost emotionally dead in the span of one scene, and it's, it's quite something. So Adams, played by Ted Knight, plays basically the same character in this episode of The Twilight Zone as he does in Caddyshack, and with the slightest hint of glee and the most assured overdose of smarminess, gives Corey the news that the powers that be on Earth have decided that no pardons will be given out for the time being, or maybe maybe never, and... This, of course, devastates Corey even further because, apparently, in the episode he was convicted of murder, but it was murder in self-defense, and he was given 50 years on the, on the asteroid as punishment for this. So if he'd been there just over four years, that's give or take 46 more years to go in complete isolation, only seeing one person every three months or so. But... Allenby has maybe a little bit of a solution to this because apparently since he knew the outcome of the court's decisions to not allow pardons anymore, he thought ahead and he brought Mr. Corey a present in the form of a robot. Now, Adams and the third crew member that we don't really care about uh, didn't know what was in the big crate. They just knew they had to get it off of the ship. But in the crate was the robot, molded after a human, and 
in the form and likeness of Jean Marsh, who plays Alicia, the robot. Now, it's not implicitly, or explicitly, I should say, stated that this robot, being in the future, as it were, even the future by our standards today, being in 2020, the robot has the ability to learn. It has AI that it can learn and grow, basically as a person would. Although it's never, you know, expressly given that that's what happens, but you kind of pick up on that, you know, even though in 1959 they didn't know what AI was other than two letters of the alphabet. And even today it's really in its infancy. But we learn that Alicia the robot can feel pain and sadness and loneliness. And, well, like I said, even pain due to Corey giving her the... uh a little bit of light physical abuse, you know, which was prevalent back in the 50s and 60s. So he's quite put off by her, and he he makes the remark that, you know, her being there, her acting like a person is basically mocking him because she's just a machine and doesn't know anything and is worthless, you know. But in the time permitted in the episode to fit everything in, that sort of gets glossed over, and we see them what amounts to almost a year later, playing checkers together, and they seem to be very simpatico, very, I hate to use the term in love, but very comfortable and very loving toward each other. Now, again, it's never known, but when Alan B. and the other crew show up, I'm supposing she just hides off in the mountains somewhere until they're gone, because the other crew members are not supposed to know that she's there. And that little bit will come in handy later on in the episode. So, like I said, she's with him for almost a year. And they're sitting out under the stars one night looking at the stars and they see a ship coming. Which they figure is Alan Peace. But it doesn't really make sense because he apparently was just there not long ago. So they knew he would be there by morning. So the next morning, the ship lands. Alan B. and... Adams and the other guy that we don't really care that much about get out and uh, run up to Corey telling him that he has to get his stuff. He has to get his stuff together because the powers that be have granted him a pardon and all the other people that they had put on asteroids have all gotten pardons or at least transferred back to Earth to finish their sentence due to the extremely cruel and inhumane punishment that these people would receive on these asteroids. But now this pardon and the rescuing from the asteroid comes with a slight caveat of Corey can only carry 15 pounds of supplies with him. And, of course, Alicia weighs a lot more than 15 pounds being a robot and being the size of a person. Even if she was an actual person, she would weigh a lot more than 15 pounds. So, since Alan B. hasn't seen Alicia in months, almost a year... He forgot about her, and so, of course, Corey said, well, let me get Alicia, and we'll be out of here, and Alan B. said, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Well, you can't take her with you. So, once again, we see Jack Warden go from extremely elated, extremely happy, kid in a candy store, kid on Christmas morning, to just completely crestfallen and devastated that he can't take the person, the thing, the object, the companion that he has grown to love over the past year, home with him. And so, basically, he'll be lonely all over again. 
So, of course, Corey throws a fit, makes a scene, and Allenby does what he thinks he has to do, and he shoots the robot in the face, effectively killing it. Now, as a Twilight Zone fan, you almost think that, and spoilers, by the way, you almost think that Corey, before he threw a fit and tried to run after Alicia and before Allenby shot her, you almost think, well, he's just going to stay on the asteroid with her, and that's that, or he's going to kill one of the crewmen, and, you know, that would have a person to take the place, you know, of, for Alicia. But, no, in a somewhat more shocking event, Alan B. pulls out a pistol and shoots Alicia in the face, killing her, to where we see the camera pan along the ground, we see her body lying there, and then you see her face blown apart, and nothing but wires and lights and electrodes and everything else in there. So, myself being a Twilight Zone fan, even when I first saw this, I thought, well, he's going to stay with, with Alicia on the planet for some reason, or for some way they're going to do that. But then here comes Allenby with the old, you know, the old, old Geller treatment, and takes her out back and shoots her in the face. Which brings about the, one of the, one of the to me, the one of the creepiest and most powerful scenes in the episode was where you see the camera pan across her body, and you hear the words Corey, but it's like a battery is running down in the in the audio device. So it's like Corey, 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 Corey. And it's really it's really done well, I think. And it, it kind of drives home the idea that the thing he loved, even though it was it was metal and mechanics and machinery, was no longer there and he was in fact alone again. And they take Corey to the ship, and they fly away. And now, here's Will Lastly with the closing narration. On a microscopic piece of sand that floats through space is a fragment of a man's life. Left to rust is the place he lived in and the machines he used. Without use, they will disintegrate from the wind and the sand and the years that act upon them. All of Mr. Corey's machines including the one made in his image, kept alive by love, but now obsolete in the Twilight Zone. And that was Will Lastly with the closing narration. So, this episode was directed by Jack Smite. Now, Jack Smite had directed four episodes of the Twilight Zone. He directs this one. He directs The Lateness of the Hour, which is another Twilight Zone, you know, perennial favorite, uh, which also deals with robots, and he directed Night of the Meek, which is a Christmas episode, which is an absolute wonderful episode. It's one of my favorites, to be honest with you. And he also directs the episode 22, which, uh, if you are a Twilight Zone fanatic like myself, you know that Lateness of the Hour and 22 were two of six episodes that were shot on videotape as instead of film, which severely limited the amount of camera angles and everything else you could have on a certain episode, which limited the scope of what a director could do with each episode. And I think that you'll find out when you see them, but I think that Jack Smite did a wonderful job in those two episodes and the other two that he did. I think his direction was good in this in this episode, but... 
it's one of those things of he didn't really have a heck of a lot to work with, so to speak. I mean, it was a very static sort of of filming environment that needed to be done due to the remoteness of the story, so to speak. And I think his directing ability really shines in the subsequent three episodes that he directs. I think he just wasn't given a heck of a lot to do with this one. It was basically just point and shoot, and he's actually a, a better director than that. All right, James Corey was played by Jack Warden, who was born in 1920 and died in 2006, and has 169, or I'm sorry, 164 IMDb credits to his name. And he was born John Warden Lebzelter, which, of course, with a name like Lebzelter, doesn't really transfer to Hollywood really well. So you'd want to change that. So he shortened John to Jack and used Warden as his last name. Now, Jack Warden was one of those people that you know his face, you know him when you see him. He's been in a lot of things, mostly as character actors. In a lot of things. He was in the movies 12 Angry Men, you know. Uh, he was in And Justice for All with Al Pacino. He was in all the Problem Child movies, which I wouldn't claim that if I was him. But, you know, he was actually uh, starred in a sitcom based upon the Bad News Bears movies, where he played the character of Morris Buttermaker, the coach of the Bad News Bears, in the sitcom. And a lot of people may know him as I know him, to me, the most recently, uh, where he played Artie Lang's dad in the movie Dirty Work, which is one of my favorite movies. It's just stupid, but it's hilarious, and I laugh every time I see it. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's worth an hour and a half of your time, and you'll laugh. And in this episode of The Twilight Zone, he did a very, very stout performance as James Corey. And I think it's, to me, it's one of the best um, pieces of acting on most of the Twilight Zone episodes that you'll see. It was uh, very well done. Now, Alan B. was played by John Daner, but as I've said, he was in, you know, other episodes where he actually starred and wasn't a secondary player. So we will discuss more about him as the time goes on when we get to those episodes. But he is one of my favorite actors, so it'll be fun to kind of delve into his life a little bit. Now, Jean Marsh played Alicia, and she was born in London in 1934, and she has a little over 100 credits to her name on IMDb, and this was one of her first acting jobs when she came to America, was this episode of The Twilight Zone. Now, she played a robot, and, I mean, there's really not much to be done with that, and she did it well, and um, I think anyway, you know, most anyone could have probably turned in the same performance. I'm not saying she's a bad actress, she isn't, but it was just not a lot to work with. But she was born in 1934 and still living today, so that tells you something. You know, she's lived a good life, so to speak. But she started her career being a model, and if you watch this episode, you can see she does have very striking features and is, in fact, a pretty woman. Even of the time, you know, women in the 50s and 60s, you were either pretty or you weren't, I guess. You know, there's not as wide of a range, at least in film, as there is today. 
but she had very striking features and she was very pretty and she was a model but she delved into the acting after the modeling you know kind of she got tired of it didn't want to do it anymore got the acting bug and started from there and after a few parts in in america she moved back to england where she co-created and starred in the british tv series upstairs downstairs which was a big hit True fans might remember her from a little movie called Willow, where she played Queen Bavmorda. And she also went on to star and co-create other TV shows as well in, in Britain. So that also speaks to, that's, that's pretty, pretty groundbreaking for the time for a woman to co-create a TV series that wasn't the, the most heard of thing back then. But in this role, she had not a lot to do, but she did it well. All right, on to trivia for this episode. Um, This episode, along with I Shot an Arrow Into the Air, 100 Yards Over the Rim, and the Rip Van Winkle Caper, were all shot in Death Valley, which, you know, if you know anything about Death Valley, it's nothing but desert and salt flats and heat and misery. So due to the extreme conditions of filming... Several crew members actually got heat stroke and had to be either taken back or taken to the hospital um, to be treated. In fact, uh, director of photography George T. Clemens actually fell off of a camera crane because he passed out due to the heat and fell off of a camera crane and had to be taken to the hospital. But luckily the interior shots of Corey's little ramshackle hut were filmed on a soundstage after the realization that it was extremely hot and they could do some stuff actually back at the sound stages. So they did that. Now, they shot this episode in tandem with I Shot an Arrow Into the Air to get more bang for the buck. Given the fact of the heat issues, it was better to shoot two episodes at once, you know, and just have the same amount of time people were out in the elements as to do it, you know, film one this week and then film one four or five weeks later in the same place and subject the crew to the same amount of environmental disaster that Death Valley is. And the same with 100 Yards Over the Rim and the Rip Van Winkle caper. They were shot in tandem as to do the same thing, mitigate the crew and and cast's exposure to the heat. At one point, Jean Marsh, who played Alicia, was laying down on the on the salt flat floor of Death Valley, where her character was, you know, shot in the face and lying there. And someone actually took the temperature of the ground right next to her where she was laying, and it read 140 degrees. So that tells you right there how hot it was. Now, as I said before, this was one of the sweatier episodes of The Twilight Zone. And sweat back then was made by taking olive oil or some some oil and rubbing it over the exposed skin of the actors and then spraying the skin with water so that the water would bead up and make it look like beads of sweat that were stuck on a person's skin. And it's a very effective... um, piece of trickery that's you know one of those things you never know until you until you research it now as far as goofs 
Uh, there are a few continuity errors and stuff like that, but um, one of the glaring goofs is in the actual story itself for the fact that 9 million miles from Earth is, is not far enough from Earth for an asteroid to be. Most asteroids and asteroids belts are somewhere around 200 million miles from Earth, so quite a difference. And also for the fact that asteroids lack the size and ability to hold any sort of atmosphere that would be suitable for living. So that's kind of, you know, suspension of disbelief there. And in the last shot of the episode on the asteroid that's 9 million to 200 million miles away from Earth, a bird flies across the screen, which wouldn't happen on an asteroid 9 million to 200 million miles from Earth that was desolate like that. So, on to the moralistic and philosophical discussion in this episode. Um, I think, and this is just me, but I think that this episode is a little more personal to Rod, maybe, in, the, in my mind anyway. Um, that it, it speaks to, I think, the loneliness that he felt uh, during and after World War II when he served. Um, and I think that that kind of translated to the page here in this uh, episode. You know, the isolation that a soldier can feel, not only in the field, but when he comes home, because he's seen things and done things that most people haven't. And so that's kind of a something that sets him apart and, and can lead to loneliness, even though you're surrounded by people. But I think maybe the silver lining to the moral and philosophical debate of this episode could be that the love of something, the love of anything, whether it's artificial or real, can carry you through the hard times, much like the love that Corey had for Alicia. Now, for the likes and dislikes portion of our show, the likes that I liked about this show was the direction was well done by a competent guy who you'll see more of his work later and we will discuss it, you know, at a later time. Uh, Jack Warden, I found to be really the best part of this episode and rightfully should have been the star and he was the star of the, of the episode, but his acting was very, very, very good, I think, in this episode. John Daner, always, always a pleasure to see. The man is a very competent actor, and you'll see that further on in the series, in the episodes that he stars in. And I like the fact that they shot it on location in Death Valley, and not just in some soundstage with a little bit of sand on the ground. I think it made it a little more authentic, a little more lonely, if you will. As far as the dislikes for this episode, uh, really the only dislike I have is the fact that um, this episode really should have been one of the one-hour episodes from Season 4 and not a half-hour episode from Season 1. Um, due to the fact that I would have liked more background, more delving into the character of Corey and in the relationship between him and Alicia, not just fast-forward 11 months to when... Alan B. comes back on the ship and tells him he's pardoned. I think they that easily it should have been an hour episode, and it would have been one of the best hours of television ever created. 
And I think because it was a half hour and not an hour that it suffered because of that. But certainly not doing any part to Jack Smite or Jack Warden or Gene Marsh or any of the other cast that did a fantastic job. Now, if I were to cast it today, if this episode were to be made today, and they came to me and said, Bill, who would you want to cast in this episode? We're going to remake this episode. Who would you cast? Personally, um, I think for for Corey, I would use Chris Pratt. I think he would be very good at it. I think he would uh, excel in the role much like Jack Warden did uh, back in the day. For Alicia, you need someone who is pretty, but sort of eh, there, but not there. So I think Megan Fox would be a good choice for that. And as far as Adams, once again, I'd like to put a big name in a small role. And I would think Jeff Goldblum would fit the bill damn near to a T. Pardon my French. And uh, that's who I would cast anyway. If you have... Any different choices, let me know. Send me an email. You know, find me on Facebook. Yell at me out the window of your car as you drive by my house. Let me know. Now, on to the listener feedback portion. Normally, I don't have any, but this week, I actually have someone that wrote in, and I am shocked and surprised and happy and all the other emotions you could think of when someone actually appreciates what you do. Or even, you know, yells at you for what you do. Any attention, I guess, in this realm is good attention. So, uh, I have an email from a person named Austin Weber. And I will, with their permission, of course, read you the email. He says, hello, Bill. Hope you're doing well. Just started listening to the podcast. I'm two episodes in and wanted to say I've been enjoying the episodes. I like the detail and depth you go into with each episode. Your review of Episode 7, The Lonely, isn't out yet. Well, it soon will be. I just wanted to say that this one was one of the first episodes I saw during the sci-fi marathons, and it hooked me for the rest of the night. I like the set, the acting is good, and even though there isn't a true Twilight Zone twist ending, it is still a gut punch to see the android get shot. It's a relative lesson about how connected we can get to technology, especially today in the age of phones and the internet. We look to technology more than ever to find companionship. Thank you again for your hard work, and have a great week. Austin. Well, thank you for writing in, Austin. I, uh, I'm actually surprised that I got feedback, and, and I look forward to it. And Write me again about any other episodes that you, you feel strongly about, and I will gladly read them, you know, read the feedback on the air, and we will discuss it. Um, Sci-fi, what he's referring to, the Sci-Fi Channel used to do marathons of the Twilight Zone, usually 4th of July and sometimes on Thanksgiving or Christmas around the holidays. They would do a 24, 48, or 72-hour marathon, depending, and they would just show episodes back to back to back to back the entire day, the entire two days, the entire three days of the marathon. They've pretty much stopped doing that at this point. A couple other channels, I think, have taken up the mantle of that, but for the most part, sci-fi doesn't do it anymore. However, Austin, um, seeing The Lonely as a first episode, I think uh, fantastic 
first episode to see if you've never watched the show. Um, it's a great first episode, really. Um, there are only a few more that I would suggest watching first. Um, but then again, those are really good episodes, and I don't want to ruin it for when you run across one that isn't as good. And even Rod Serling himself said there were a lot of dogs, you know, in the run of the series. But I agree with you. The acting was was very good. Um, and even though, yes, like you said, there really isn't a true twist ending to the Twilight Zone episode, The Lonely. I agree. Um, there isn't a twist ending. But it's still quite something to see the android get shot in the face. And then they just drag Corey to the ship and, and go away. And I think I agree with you that uh, even Rod Serling from the 50s, um, I'm sure he wasn't a, <laughs> I'm sure he wasn't a prophet, but um, he definitely made material that would stand the test of time. And I think this lesson in this episode can definitely be applied to how technology can take over our lives and can give us the companionship we crave that a lot of people don't have, especially in today's day and age with the coronavirus and everything else and the lockdowns and the quarantines. People are craving companionship more than ever, and I think technology uh, fills the gap in a lot of those situations, uh, sadly. So thank you very much, Austin, for your feedback. I look forward to more should you have it. And if you do, please send it to me at dimensionstzpodcast at gmail.com. And I will be sure to peruse it and read it on the air with your permission. If you want, tell me in the, in the email that I can read it on the air. That way I don't, you know, step on anybody's toes unnecessarily. Now, next week's episode is titled Time Enough at Last. And if all works out well, I will have a guest star on the podcast. Um, but Time Enough at Last is basically a story about a small man who wants to be left alone and gets his wish. So stay tuned for that. It's really one of the best episodes you can watch um, of The Twilight Zone, and I hope I do it justice. But the uh, clock on the wall is telling me it's time to go, and thank you all for listening. Have a good night.